broadcasting from Fairfax, Virginia, you are now tuned in to the Highlight Cast with your hosts, Adam McNair and Kevin Long. Hello, welcome to episode number two of the Highlight Cast. This is Adam McNair, the CEO of Highlight Technologies, joined by Kevin Long, VP of Delivery. Welcome. So, uh, thank you for tuning in again. Uh, the, again, the, the point of this this podcast is trying to make sure that we can have another avenue to communicate with our employees and uh, share some of the insights we have on the industry, some of the things that are happening, and uh, also just to talk about some of the challenges that that are faced by a small business and some of the innovative ways we're going about tackling them. We get a lot of questions and a lot of different uh, avenues. This is just a way for us to, to uniformly talk about them. And uh, so a couple of the, the topics we're going to address today. The first is multiple award contracts and government-wide contracts are something that have been done for a very, very long time. Uh, but where we are now is an interesting time in that kind of in generation two of several contracts. Uh, there's there's Alliant 2. Alliant came out five or six years ago. Alliant 2 is now out now. And also GSA STARS, the STARS program were let several years ago. And then GSA STARS 2 happened and then they on-ramped businesses. Any kind of time you have a small business vehicle, you find that a lot of the small businesses get bought. Yeah. Uh, they make acquisitions, they become large businesses, so you need to refresh your small business population. Especially when it's an 8A because you explicitly time out. So, exactly. With stars, so. Yeah, so uh, there, there are three major vehicles that represent billions of dollars in federal contracts that are uh, being adjudicated right now. Uh, STARS 2 was the first one where we saw it on ramp, and they added. It says about 200 more companies to that vehicle. Then Alliant 2 small business is <laughs> still in the works, I guess. Kevin, how would you describe it? I Kind of in, in stasis almost? Purgatory? Yeah. I think it's purgatory. Um, yeah, where that is, is they, they are, they've been awarding the different, different areas, hub zone, veteran-owned, small business, etc., Everybody protests when these things happen, and it's a, it's a big deal not to get them. So. It really is. I mean, companies can have formed themselves at times in time stage, so they know that when they when these open seasons on these vehicles are going to come around, yep. it, it can be the way that you you direct and guide your company for five or ten years on some of these vehicles. Yeah, absolutely, uh, and then uh, CIOSP three. Yes, and then CISP3, so that's the third iteration of, of that contract. Um, now, when we talk about protests, the way they used to do these vehicles is you were just trying to explain why you were good. And one versus two, one versus three, one versus five, that's hard enough. You get 800 or 1,000 bidders. Especially when all of the proposals say, no, I'm really good. My current customers love me. Trust me. It's great. Yeah, and the, the challenge also is separating one from two is hard. Drawing the dividing line between company number 350 and company number 351 becomes very, very difficult when it's a subjective process. Yes. And so something that the, these agencies have gone to in, in recent years is they do a self-scored process um, Kevin, you want to kind of summarize how that works? Sure. Uh, they'll give you uh, different criteria. You know, where have you done this type of work before? 
one point if you've done it as a prime at a certain scale, two points if you've done it a bunch of different places. You know, each time it's a little bit different, but you go through and look at you and your team's history and give yourself a score based on the different uh, statement of work areas that you've done. And so you get to go through and decide just how how relevant your your work and your past performance is to the work that's going to be out on that vehicle. And it gives you at least a at least I hope it would give you a good idea of, of how well you're going to score I- into whether or not you'd uh, whether it'd be worth your worth your time to even submit to it. So, yeah, it's a it's great because it's a quantitative, not qualitative. Yeah, and it's it's nice for a lot of different reasons. There's there, there's one aspect that it saves you the work and time as a company if you know that you're not in the running. A lot of times they will say you must have at least 6,000 out of 10,000 points to be considered eligible for award. It means you don't waste your time if you don't line up against the requirements that they've laid out. The other thing, it does make protests much much quicker to adjudicate because what what the argument becomes around is we think we should get 500 points in this area because we believe we showed five projects that were delivering at the CMMI level three standard and you didn't give us the full points for it. It becomes a much more tangible kind of discussion and so uh, we've been seeing the government go through the protests on those. STARS took a while, Alliance Small Business is still going through it, and STARS is still going through it, but they're happening much and getting dismissed much quicker than ordinary. Yeah, uh, and SEC 10IT totally picked up that same numeric vibe and they were uh, very uh, industry days they were talking literally about hey if you have these scores we're going to give you the minimum we're not going to tell you not to bid but seriously guys <laughs> there's a minimum and it just made it well it didn't make it easier but I would like to think that for all of the people adjudicating it and deciding who's going to get the awards you know it, it, it gives it gives them something to stand on and says you did this, you didn't do this. Here are your points. Thank you for playing. Yeah, and it's interesting. The, the The first one of those that I was exposed to was the GSA Oasis procurement, their their yep. first one. I believe they're on an Oasis 2 at this point. But yep. um, the way that went is they, they had working groups, and they worked with collaboratively with industry, and they talked about what are the challenges of responding to this kind of a, a blanket procurement and, yep. uh, you know, unknown quantity, it's very hard to say, let me tell you how I would do this collection of work right. that you're not really sure what it is or how much of it is or what technologies you need or when you need it. Or what will be needed in five or ten years when this vehicle's still in use. Exactly. And so when, when, they, when they put Oasis out eventually, um, it, was, it was interesting for me to go through from having been in some of those planning working sessions where they talked about it, and I honestly... I felt like it was probably too much of a departure from the way the government had always procured things. I, I was expecting them to try to incorporate that a little bit, but but not really go all the way to just a, a, a numerically scored uh, solution. And they did. And the instructions were, you cannot write anything approach-related 
All you can do is take excerpts from statements of work that you have. That's how you prove you've done these things. And uh, now I was at CACI at the time, and you knew you must have it somewhere in the company. Can you find it? But you had to find the statement of work. And it was, it was hard for different reasons, but at least you knew how it was going. And, and when somebody would say, how... How are we doing on that bid? You're like, well, we're at 13,000 out of 16,000 points so far, and we're still working. Yeah. As opposed to doing fine, going yeah. going pretty well. Think we've got an approach. Yeah, yeah. So it it did feel different. and um, Well, it's, and it's perfect where if it's an IDIQ where they're going to not know what task orders are going to come out, what the needs are going to be. They just, the purpose isn't to come up with, uh, a great solution architect. It's to come up with companies that have proven performance to be able to do that kind of work. And then in the task orders, make them come up with the innovative ideas. It's prove that you can't, that you're worth talking to in the future. Yeah. So I, I, I really like the, the trend that is happening uh, yep. with those IDIQs. Those are vehicles have done it. Oasis has done it. Um, Seaport was essentially the same yeah. type of, of thing out of the Navy. Uh, some of the multiple award contracts Navy has been putting out, they've been using the same model. I went to an industry day in Pax River about a year ago when they were uh, gearing up for one of their multiple award contracts, and they were very transparent about it. It was kind of refreshing. They said, we don't usually do these kinds of multiple award contracts, but we know the ones we've done in the past haven't worked out that well. So we called GSA and asked them how they do these. And wow. they sent us the scoring matrix that they had used on a previous one and talked us through it. And we think we're going to do this one that way. That's great. And uh, and it was interesting because the, it was a packed room. There must have been 250 companies there. And there was a lot of pushback because they weren't going to end up being able to be compliant. It yeah. wasn't just... I spent X number of years in the Navy. I know these programs. I can write about these things. It was, we don't actually have six programs where we've done that before. Right. Yeah, and it, it is interesting because it shifts the burden from you know traditional solution architect where you're coming up with an approach, you're coming up with, with a way to solve a particular problem to an administrative problem where can you find your past performance? Have you done this work? Do you have the statement statements of work? Uh, uh, available to be able to extract and you know do you have the manpower to scroll through the 500 page statement of work that was issued in on your contract so that you can pull it out and put put it into this but it's great because you just look at it and quantitatively you know pretty quickly you look at it and you can tell is it worth your time and you just don't get that in in sort of a standard solution based uh when you're actually bidding, you know, I'll call it a real program as opposed mm -hmm. to an IDIQ. I just love the predictability of it. Yeah, yeah, I do too. And uh, that's something that we'll continue to watch. And I, I think it'll be interesting to see how that develops over the next couple of months as they adjudicate the remainder of the protests. And uh, yeah. hopefully we see Alliant 2 Small Business, uh, all of the on-ramped companies be active. We see the CISP3 on-ramped companies yep. be active. And uh, I just wish it would speed the uh, the acquisition process of actually getting it awarded and and uh, of resolving the protests. Yeah, and you know, protests are probably another topic that we can could delve into one of these days, but um, to your point earlier, there are companies that have planned for 
five or ten years that yep. this was going to be a linchpin of their company. So any protest you read, it always at some level sounds like, oh, the, this is just sour grapes. These, these, these folks lost and they don't want to give it up. But it, it, it is a really big deal. Not, not winning one of these is a really, really big deal. And we've seen... There have been acquisitions that have been $100 million acquisitions of companies in the past just because they had a vehicle. That you needed to get. And you needed to get. And I've seen large businesses make acquisitions just because they said, hey, look, for our market space, if we don't have vehicle X, it's a major problem for us. And they make an acquisition that's around nothing but that vehicle. So the other topic I thought we might address today, uh, you know, as we go out and do employee events, we do employee lunches, uh, do a lot of you know, interviewing, and I've had several questions over the last couple of weeks that were centered around security clearances. Um, the dark arts. Right. Can I get one? Um, can you hold my clearance? Do I have the right clearance for this program? How long will it take? What's the difference between HSPD 12, standard agency check, Secret, top secret, polygraph, did they talk to my dog? Yeah, it's crazy. Right. So the first one, um, was a question I get a lot, is how long does it take to get a clearance? <laughs> so Kevin, how long does it take me to get a clearance? It takes as long as it takes. It takes as long as it takes, but it'll take longer if you travel a lot out of the country. It takes longer if, uh, if you don't pay your bills. <laughs> it takes longer uh, if you have a lot of foreign contacts, uh, it takes longer if you've moved a lot, but it takes even longer if you don't submit your SF-86 on time. You know, that's a really good point. I will tell you that, that I, it is amazing to me when people are going in for the clearance process, and the SF-86 is the big form you have to fill out of basically every place you've ever lived, every job you've ever had, all of your relatives, and answer a whole bunch of questions about behavior and things. They simply don't fill it out and turn it in in a timely fashion. Right. If you wait three to four months before you fill your, your paperwork out and submit it... it nothing starts till they get that piece of paper. The clock or, hasn't started yet. Or, That's or exactly that right. 120 sheets of paper. That's a big piece of it is you should be able to think about the complexity of your application and decide if you think that that feels like it's going to take a long time or not a long time. Yep. A lot of times people that are directly out of college are the shortest ones you'll get. Yep. They've lived at their parents' house, they had an address in college, they've had one job, they haven't traveled internationally, they don't have any international friends, they kind of have nothing to declare, yep. they don't have much of a credit history, they don't have any of those things. So it's pretty much a, a agency check. They make sure there's no warrants for you. And, and if you're just going for something like a secret or a public trust. Yeah, that's only nine months. Yes. <laughs> it, it, it'll, or it'll, so. And, it, and it, it varies from agency to agency. Oh, yeah. And it doesn't necessarily, the level of clearance and how long it is are not necessarily directly, directly related. I, I've seen things at civilian agencies that have no classified information take six or seven months and you're trying to get somebody into the Pentagon and it happens to come back in two months. Absolutely. Um, that can happen. You can kind of just look at how complex does my information appear to be and that's probably a good benchmark for about how long it will take. Now that's aside from sometimes things get lost. Uh, sometimes if they're trying to get in touch with your references, if they don't get back to them, 
yeah. th that will delay the process. But the investigators are, are under service level agreements back to the government that they need to be processing cases quickly. So once they start working on it, it usually yeah. moves pretty quick. It's just getting through that backlog. Yeah, and if they find if they find something that they need to ask another question about, they just keep asking the questions until they feel good about the answer and they keep going or they don't feel good about the answer and then no clearance. Yeah. Now another question I get is will my clearance transfer? Yeah. And uh, let me ask you, Kevin, so I've, I've got a clearance at a government agency, and I see that you've got a job open, and will my clearance transfer? If you need to have that clearance to have the job, probably. And the timeline for, for, for transferring it, it varies widely. You know, I, I've seen a lot of different agencies. So, Department of Defense is particularly good at accepting all of the clearances yeah. inside of their organizations. And if you have a secret clearance from anybody, you come in and they say, you have a secret clearance, why would we redo this? A lot of independent civilian agencies are the yep. ones that say, oh, you have a top secret with Department of Defense. That lets us skip one step in our 45-step process. We still have to repeat all of these other things. Absolutely. A another variable in that process is when were you last reinvestigated? Oh, yeah. A lot of agencies I've seen, if you were reinvestigated recently or your clearance is kind of new, yeah. they figure, well, they just looked at all this stuff. We don't have to look at it. Whereas if it was done a year ago, two years ago, three, four, five years ago, yep. they may reinvestigate. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, especially because a secret's good for 10, uh, 10 years. So at that point, if you're, if you're seven or eight years in, uh, reciprocity, whether or not they should accept it, they're not always necessarily going to. Um, if you were just reinvestigated or investigated for the first time last year, yeah, for anything at the same level or below, uh, I've never seen it rejected. I've just seen it take a long time. Yeah. Um, another question I get asked is, what information, you know, what, what prep work can I be doing before I fill out my SF-86? Know everywhere you've lived. The only way I knew that when I first filled it out is that I never delete an address from Amazon. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so everywhere you've lived for the last seven to ten years, um, every time you've left the country, uh, all of your parents and in-laws, their dates of birth, where they were born, their security numbers, that information for you, if you're a man, selective service draft number, any bills that are, are overdue by at least 90 days, uh, if they've ever been overdue by 90 days in that period of time, what else do they want? Siblings, uh, foreign contacts, you know, anybody that you're particularly close to that isn't an American citizen. They want to know who they are. Yeah. I know a lot of that it's, data... It's a bunch of stuff. That data probably sounds like, oh, of course I would have that. Nope. <laughs> you think you do until you have to write it down. And when you look at the instruction and it says, please list every place you've lived in the last 10 years with no gaps. And someone who knew you when you lived there don't have repeats. And so, it, it again, that's one of those areas where it kind of depends on what your profile is at that point. If you've lived in the same house for the last 10 years, that section just took you 30 seconds and you're done. Yep. If you 
We're in college, then back at your parents, and then in college, and back at your parents, and in college, and back at your parents, and then you spent the summer in Cape Cod one time, and then you had four different apartments in this area. Guess what? That's 15 or 20 different entries. You might remember that you had an apartment in, in Arlington, do you remember what the actual address was, and do you remember anybody that knew you when you were there, and do you have contact info for them if that was six years ago? Those are the areas where you start to realize, oh, this is harder than I thought. Yep. And I think that's probably where people get sidetracked, and they say, oh, oh yeah. that's right, I, that guy that lived across the, street, the hallway from me, I, I think my friend so-and-so knows him. i got to remember to call them. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, it's a month later, and they haven't completed their paperwork. Yeah. Or, or what job did you have 10 years ago? I mean, I know when I've filled mine out uh, in the past, companies I've worked for don't exist anymore, right? I mean, so how, how, do you, how do you know that they don't exist? How do you provide contact information for that? They still ask the question. It takes time. It, it, was a, it is a no-joke exercise, which is why you should also save your review copy, put it in your, in your uh, safe deposit box, You'll, you'll you'll be happy that you have it when you fill it out again. Yeah, because there are things like vacations and the dates that you were out of the country. Yep. Because the kinds of things that, that are very, very easy that come up, and this is a data-driven exercise, if your passport was stamped, they know when that got stamped. Sure do. So if you estimate, you're like, I think I went to Italy for my cousin's wedding in August, and it wasn't August, you just thought it was. Yep. That's now a discrepancy that they have to track down. The more of those things that don't match up, they know when you worked someplace because they can they can see it on your tax records. All of those kinds of things. The more accurate you are, the less because you're not trying to hide anything. It's just I don't remember yep. what month I worked for whatever company and yep. fifteen years ago. And the longer it'll be your person, the longer your personal interview will be too, because they're going to go through every single item. Yeah through all 120 pages uh, of, of your life, and that's that's not a, a particularly interesting SF-86 at that length. And they will ask you about every single thing on it. Another question that, that I get is, can I get a clearance? And I think the answer to that is, if the job you're going into requires one, sure, we can get you one. Yep. And then it begs that question, but if I want to work on a cleared program, but I don't have a clearance, but I have to have a clearance to have that job, how do I make that happen? Yeah, um, the chicken and the egg problem. Well, not all contracts need existing clearances. There will almost always be a preference for it because it's easier. I mean, transferring a clearance is always easier than a new one. But honestly, most programs that I've worked with that require clearance will accept an interim clearance, which means that they will except people that are in the clearance process. So it's about if you are the best person for the job, almost every government agency will work with you to get the right person to do the job. And as, a, as an interviewer, you're really not allowed to ask people any of the things that might cause them to not get their clearance. You're really not permitted to ask them about. But as a candidate, there's nothing wrong with you saying, by the way, I know I don't have a clearance and I would need an interim to be on that program. Yep. 
I know what the real variables are for whether you get a clearance or not. There's nothing in my background that's going to stop me from getting an interim. Because that's always the worry. When you sit there and you look at one candidate who's already cleared and another candidate who you'd have to get an interim on, you ask yourself, what's the likelihood that this person never defaulted on a car loan? Right. Yeah, you know, those are things you can't, you have no idea. And you really don't want to get the customer to fall in love with someone without a clearance and say that they'll work out and then have them fall through. Right. I've gotten used to, when I interview people, saying, hey, you know, these are the things that cause trouble with clearances. Are you still comfortable going forward with this process? And it's a nice yes or no answer. And uh, with that, and if they say yes, we believe them because, you know. You got it, right? I mean, the, you, you've liked them enough to try to bring them on board that far. So we go with the uh, assumption that, that, they're, that they understand with all of that and they're the right person for it. But, yeah, uh, we've had some people or I've had some people say, you know, no, not really. Um, and then you say, well, thank you. And, you know, then this is probably not the right gig for you. Uh, but, you know, when they say yes, you know, then it's great. just takes time. Yeah, I agree. And that's a very good practice from a company standpoint is to try to, you don't ask the person, you say, look, this particular customer, here are their real areas of emphasis from a clearance standpoint. While these things aren't technically wrong or, 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 or not going to cause you a major problem in most things, they're not going to let you get cleared. Right. I know I, I've seen... You know, the fi- some of the things around uh, financial stability, at yep. particularly like we had a lot of people at DEA over the years, they have a lot of places where they are dealing with big rooms full of cash because yeah. they they are they are uh, doing raids, they're doing interdiction, they're ending up seizing big sums of of, of money. They're very very particular about making sure that people are very financially stable. Yep. Um, and there, there are a lot of other agencies that have their own particular... Federal student aid asks specific questions about, have you defaulted on a student loan? You know, because they, they care about that. DEA, uh, puts again, also puts a whole lot of emphasis on drug use, right? Obviously. Makes sense, right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, another question that, that we get around clearances is, Kevin, how much is it going to cost to get my clearance? You, nothing. Customer, I don't even know that they get billed. I know I've never seen an invoice for it. It's part of the cost of doing business. So, yeah. Yeah, so that's something to know is that getting a clearance doesn't cost the applicant anything, but as a company, you don't pay for it. There's no mechanism for us to write a check to OPM or the Defense Security Service or anybody else that adjudicates clearances to pay them back for whatever level of clearance it is. So I do know, I've, I've, I've had several people that I've known be told by companies we're not going to put you in for a clearance because we don't want to pay for it. They're either misinformed or they just didn't want to tell you to your face that they don't want to get you a clearance. Yep. Which ties into, I've gotten a question within the last week, can you park my clearance for me? The contract I'm on doesn't require it. But I don't want to lose it. But I don't want to lose it. Can you park it for me? The answer to that question is always equivocally no. Because that language indicates that I don't have any need of this clearance, but I sure would like to keep this thing that I really, truly don't have a requirement for. Sure would be convenient. Yeah. 
So here's the doesn't work that way. Here's the right question when you're approaching an employee, an employer, and you have a clearance that you would like to maintain. Yep. I currently have a clearance. The contract I'm going to doesn't require one. Are there any things inside of the company where I could assist in some limited way in a part-time capacity that would require that clearance? Right. Some examples of that might be you're going to a contract that's not cleared, but you know the company has cleared contracts and they might need ISO audits done. If they need, a, if they need an audit done on a contract that is cleared, there's a good chance the person that shows up on site for the couple of hours, a quarter to do that, probably needs a clearance. That would mean you would probably need to, to maintain your clearance. Yeah, or if you do release management or you're a DBA or a programmer or something like that, is there... Or is there help that could be done on a release? Could you be able to step in to help uh, cover folks when they go on vacation? I mean, just things that that legitimately give you a reason to need to have a clearance. That's it. Yeah. And the reason behind that is, you know, the, the regulations say that you can't just give clearances to people that don't need them. But DSS, Defense Security Service, comes in and audits companies periodically and the way those audits go is they want to make sure you're doing the right stuff that the people that have access to the clearance systems have the right trainings and clearances and all that kind of stuff they do those things but then what they say is show me all of your contracts that have clearance requirements and then show me the employees that you have that have clearances as they relate to those contracts Yep. So when you get down to, oh, well, here's Adam McNair. He's not working on any of these things. Why are you holding his clearance? Yep. That's Those are the questions they ask. Yeah, so, so yeah, this, is, this is a, a $1 million a year uh, contract. Why are there 50 clearances against this? Exactly. And so, so the, the real answer needs to be, here are the things these people are doing. Yep. And the bona fide things they're doing for that program. Because DSS is not going to delve into, wh- why does it take two quality assurance people to check deliverables right. that are submit? If those people are really doing those things, DSS isn't going to say, I think you should be able to do that with, with less software developers. <laughs> they're not in the business of that. Right. They're simply saying, oh, okay, they build software. That's a software contract. That makes, that makes sense. sense. Those people are there. So... Um, so I think that's a topic that is commonly brought up, and oh, yeah. people are looking for a favor, and you can't park clearances. You can't hold them when there's no need for them, but what you can do is have a conversation about, okay, you do have a clearance. That's a valuable thing. What other things could you be doing for us inside of the company that would take advantage of that? Absolutely. Um, just one last thing to touch on in, in the area that I, I think is also interesting is... Um, Companies have what is called a facility clearance. And so if someone has a, a security clearance and they go to a company that does not have a facility clearance, and then you, facility, you might think facility means building. Right. What it really means is the company. They give you a cage code that demonstrates what clearance level you have. Yep. A company can only hold clearances if they have a facility clearance, and they only have a facility clearance if they have a cage code. And they can only hold clearances up to the level of their facility clearance. Yeah. So if you go into SAM.gov, which is where companies have to 
have their, their profile. It's like the LinkedIn profile of companies officially for the government. If the company has a cage code, they can hold clearances at some level. Yep. If they do not, and they've told you that, oh, come on over, yeah, we can hold your clearance, they can't. Nope. They can't. Doesn't um, work that way. But an interesting thing is the difference between having a facility clearance and having a cleared facility is a little bit different. Um, do you have a safe in your office, Kevin? <laughs> nope. A gigantic safe with glass plates in it, all kinds of certification stickers on the side. And a combination that you have to change every 90 days. Yeah, no. Not here. Yeah. Thankfully. That's the difference. There's there's a couple different kinds. Companies can well, hold personnel clearances but not necessarily be approved for storage. Yep. It's the same thing. They only approve you for storage if you have a need to, to, to store classified information. Yep. And then it goes from, do I just have a safe? I do one of these gigantic 10,000 pound, four inch thick steel glass plate, et cetera, et cetera, yep. safes. And that means I can have cleared information in the, in the facility. I can get it out and look at it. And then yep. it goes back in the safe. Yep. That's the use case. It's not, oh, I have all this stuff in my office. You're either using it or it's locked up. Yep. And that's it. And you don't. You don't get up and go to lunch and leave the safe unlocked. Even when they say it's open, it doesn't matter if it's doors closed. Yeah. It has to be locked, and you have to have a log that shows every time the safe was opened and closed. Yep, and then you have to do, I mean, all, all sorts of stuff, like American citizens are the ones who empty the trash yes. in those buildings yeah. and stuff like that. It is a, a ton of different uh, hassle with a secure facility as opposed to a facility yeah, and then a true, what they'll call open storage, that means your entire office, you can have classified information, it can be kind of wherever you can be working on it, you can you can leave it out. Yep, your entire office is the safe. Your, exactly, your entire office is the safe. The door lock becomes a combination lock, and there are all kinds of requirements, like the concrete walls have to go floor to ceiling behind your drywall. You might yep. have a drop ceiling, but it has to be met concrete to concrete or with steel reinforcement and chain link fence. Yep. Your comm cables have to be shielded. You can't have exterior windows that are uncovered. There are all kinds of things that that are required there. Oh yeah. And it becomes a very hard place to work. You can't bring your cell phones in. Uh, yeah. There, there's a lot of, of reasons to not, not wanted. To, not wanted. Exactly. Um, yeah. Yeah, so those are the differences. So, pretty much any company that you walk into, what you're going to find is that they can, that they will be able to hold facility clear. They will be able to hold personal clearances if they have facility clearance. Yeah. But very few of us have actual classified storage. Yeah, that's true. Uh, the more into the IC that you get, the more you'll see, and the larger the companies you see, they they'll have some. But in terms of small businesses, you gotta. You gotta really be neck deep in the intelligence community to have that juice be worth the squeeze. Yeah, yeah. One of the little fun little uh, side actions that I, I had several years ago is that uh, we were trying to get a, a connection to our business to a government network. Yep. And had to fill out paperwork. The problem was, once you filled out the paperwork of how you were going to connect to that network, it became classified because it's federal architecture. Yep. 
And so the, the form and all the documentation was unclassified, but once I wrote on it... The data's classified. The data was classified, but we didn't have classified storage. Oh, no. So it kind of raised that question. How do I fill it out? I'm happy to do this. I'm happy to fill it out. I don't know what to do with it once I fill it out. And so what we decided is we would fill it out. You have to double wrap the information and then we would have it in a locked briefcase and courier it down to the government office. Huh. Needed to have a courier, classified courier That's awesome. card. So we had to have our badging department make a new badge that demonstrated that one of my folks was a classified like information courier and we had to buy a metal briefcase and do that whole thing. <laughs> now, it didn't technically have to be metal, but we just felt like it sure. was more appropriate to if, have it do that. If you're going to go James Bond briefcase, go James yeah, Bond they, briefcase. The guy was really disappointed that you didn't actually have to handcuff it to Aww. him. He's like, they're going to handcuff it to me, right? Like, no, it just has to be a locked briefcase right. is, all, is all. That's that's really all it has to be. But, that's um, awesome. But yeah, so that's one of the little weirdnesses that uh, that yeah. happens. Um, anything else on the clearance? Um, just uh, there is a difference between uh, clearance and a public trust. They often are used interchangeably, but the process, it, the form may be different, but the process is nearly identical. Um, the amount of time is also equally obscure. Uh, for the differences there. And so clearances are strictly around national security. Public trust is around just what it sounds like, should the public trust you to do something. So civilian agencies will sometimes uh, use public trust where when they, when they don't touch defense or intelligence, but want to have a level of the vetting of staff for, for that. So uh, essentially through all of this, um, public trust and clearances could be used interchangeably. Yeah, the last thing I'll leave it with is it's really important to know what you actually have. A oh, lot yeah. of people you talk to, I think I have a secret. It's never good to try to go around that that gate. What yep. I would what I would tell you to do is um, anybody's facility security officer can log into it's called the JPass system. They can log in and see if you have a clearance. It takes a person's social security number. And, and their name yep. and date of birth, and they can look you up. Yep. And uh, know what you have and know what date your investigation is due again. Yeah. That's really important. Yeah. Um, oh, it makes it a lot easier. And put it on your resume. Okay. i got to look that up again. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, uh, well thank you. Uh, thank you to, uh, to, to Kevin and to uh, Matt Dodson, who's doing the production of our, uh, our podcast here at Highlight. Uh, we will continue to do these. We, uh, we, we hope that it's a, a way that we're able to meaningfully share things with, uh, with all of our employees and have some comment about the, uh, the community and engage with our, our partners in industry and some of our customers. So uh, if you have feedback or any thoughts, please uh, get back to us. We're available through the highlighttech.com website, and uh, we also are up on iTunes. Yeah, so, and if there's anything you'd like to hear us talk about, let us know. All right. Thanks, everybody. The views and opinions expressed in this episode are those of the hosts and do not necessarily reflect Highlight Technologies and or any agency of the U.S. government.